Section 2 of Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Vijeta Sharma. The Wagons. The evening was pitch dark. Star and moon were quenched in grey rain clouds. Grey they would have been by day. By night they looked sable. Malone was not a man given to close observation of nature. Her changes passed, for the most part, unnoticed by him he could walk miles on the most wearing april day and never see the beautiful darling of earth and heaven with the same sky on an unclouded frosty night he did not trouble himself to ask where the constellations and the planets were gone or to regret the black blue serenity of the air ocean which those white islets stud and which another ocean of heavier and denser element now rolled below and concealed he just doggedly pursued his way leaning a little forward as he walked and wearing his hat on the back of his head as his irish manner was tramp tramp he went along the causeway where the road boasted the privilege of such an accommodation splash splash through the mire-filled cart ruts where the flags were exchanged for soft mud he looked but for certain landmarks, the spire of Briarfield Church, further on the lights of Red House. This was an inn, and when he reached it, the glow of a fire through a half-curtained window, a vision of glasses on a round table, and of revellers on an oaken settle, had nearly drawn aside the curate from his course. He thought longingly of a tumbler of whisky and water. In a strange place, he would instantly have realized the dream, but the company assembled in that kitchen were Mr. Hellstone's own parishioners. They all knew him. He sighed and passed on. The high road was now to be quitted, as the remaining distance to Hollow's Mill might be considerably reduced by a shortcut across fields. These fields were level and monotonous. Malone took a direct course through them, jumping hedge and wall. He passed but one building here, and that seemed large and hall-like, though irregular. You could see a high gable, then a long front, then a low gable, then a thick, lofty stack of chimneys. There were some trees behind it. It was dark. Not a candle shone from any window. It was absolutely still. The rain running from the eaves, and the rather wild, but very low whistle of the wind, round the chimneys and through the boats, where the soul sounds in its neighbourhood. This building passed, the fields, hitherto flat, declined in a rapid descent, evidently a vale lay below, through which you could hear the water run. One light glimmered in the depth, for that beacon Malone steered. He came to a little white house. You could see it was white even through this dense darkness, and knocked at the door. A fresh-faced servant opened it. By the candle she held was revealed a narrow passage, terminating in a narrow stair. Two doors covered with crimson base, a strip of crimson carpet down the steps, contrasted with light-coloured walls and white floor, made the little interior look clear and fresh. Mr. Moore is at home, I suppose? Yes, sir, but he's not in. Not in? Where is he, then? At the meal. In the counting house, here one of the crimson doors opened. Are the wagons come, Sarah? 
asked a female voice, and a female head at the same time was apparent. It might not be the head of a goddess. Indeed, a screw of curl paper on each side, the temples quite forbade that supposition, but neither was it the head of a gorgon. Yet Malone seemed to take it in the latter line. Big as he was, he shrank bashfully back into the ring at the view thereof, and saying, I'll go to him, hurried in seeming trepidation down a short lane, across an obscure yard, towards a huge black mill. The work hours were over, the hands were gone, the machinery was at rest, the mill shut up. Malone walked round it. Somewhere in its great sooty flank, he found another chink of light. He knocked at another door, using for the purpose the thick end of his shillelagh, with which he beat a rousing tattoo. A key turned, the door unclosed. Is it Joe Scott? What news of the wagons, Joe? No, it's myself, uh, Mr. Heldstone would send me. Oh, Mr. Malone. The voice in uttering this name had the slightest possible cadence of disappointment. After a moment's pause, it continued, politely, but a little formally. I beg you will come in, Mr. Malone. I regret extremely Mr. Hellstone should have thought it necessary to trouble you so far. There was no necessity. I told him so, and on such a night, but walk forwards. Through a dark apartment of aspect undistinguishable, Malone followed the speaker into a light and bright room within, very light and bright indeed, it seemed to eyes which, for the last hour, had been striving to penetrate the double darkness of night and fog, but except for its excellent fire and for a lamp of elegant design and vivid luster burning on a table, it was a very plain place. The boarded floor was carpetless, the three or four stiff-backed, green-painted chairs seemed once to have furnished the kitchen of some farmhouse, a desk of strong, solid formation, the table aforesaid, and some framed sheets on the stone-coloured walls, bearing plans for building, for gardening, designs of machinery, etc., completed the furniture of the place. Plain as it was, it seemed to satisfy Malone, who, when he had removed and hung up his wet set out and hat, drew one of the rheumatic-looking chairs to the hearth and set his knees almost within the bars of the red grate. Comfortable quarters you have here, Mr. Moore, and all snug to yourself. Yes, but my sister would be glad to see you, if you would prefer stepping into the house. Oh no, the ladies are best alone. I never was a lady's mouth. You don't mistake me for my friend Sweeting, do you, Mr. Moore? Sweeting, which of them is that? The gentleman in the chocolate overcoat, or the little gentleman? The little one, he of Nunley, the cavalier of Mrs. Sykes, with the whole six of whom he's in love. Ha <laughs> ha! Better be generally in love with all than specially with one, I should think, in that quarter. But he is specially in love with one besides. For when I and Dunn urged him to make a choice amongst the fair bevy, he named, which do you think? With a queer, quiet smile, Mr. Boo replied, Dora, of course, or Harriet. Ha ha, you've made an excellent guess, but what made you hit on those two? Because they are the tallest, the handsomest, and Dora, at least, is the stoutest. And as your friend, Mr. Sweeting, is but a little slight figure, 
I concluded that, according to a frequent rule in such cases, he preferred his contrast. You are right. Do write us. But he has no chance. Has he more? What has, Mr. Sweeting, besides his curiosity? This question seemed to tickle Malone amazingly. He laughed for full three minutes before he answered it. What has Sweeting? Why, David has his harp, which comes to the same thing. He has a sort of pinchbeck watch. Ditto ring, ditto eyeglass. That's what he has. How would he propose to give Miss Sykes some gowns only? Ha ha, excellent. I'll ask him that next time I see him. I'll roast him for his presumption. But no doubt he expects old Christopher Sykes would do something handsome. He's rich, is he not? They live in a large house. Sykes carries on an extensive concern. Therefore he must be wealthy, eh? Therefore he must have plenty to do with his wealth. And in these times would be about as likely to think of drawing money from the business to give dowries to his daughters as I should be to dream of pulling down the cottage there and constructing on its ruins a house as large as Field Head. Do you know what I heard more the other day? No, perhaps that I was about to effect some such change. Your Briarfield gossips are capable of saying that or sillier things. That you were going to take Field Head on a lease. I thought it looked a dismal place, by the by, tonight as I passed it, and that it was your intention to settle a besides there as mistress, to be married in short. Ha ha! Now which is it? Dora, I'm sure. You said she was the handsomest. I wonder how often it has been settled that I was to be married since I came to Briarfield. They have assigned me every marriageable single woman by turns in the district. Now it was the two Mrs. Wins, first the dark, then the light one. Now the red-haired Miss Armitage, then the mature Anne Pearson. At present, you throw on my shoulders all the tribe of the Mississites. On what grounds this gossip rests? God knows. I visit nowhere. I seek female society about as assiduously as you do, Mr. Malone. If ever I go to Winbury, it is only to give Sykes or Pearson a call in their counting-house, where our discussions run on other topics than matrimony, and our thoughts are occupied with other things than courtships, establishments, dowries. The clothes we can't sell, the hands we can't employ, the mills we can't run, the perverse course of events generally, which we cannot alter with our hearts. I take it pretty well at present to the tolerably complete exclusion of such figments as love-making, etc. I go along with you completely more. If there's one notion I hate more than another, it is that of marriage. I mean marriage in the vulgar weak sense, as a mere matter of sentiment. Two beggarly foods are cream to unite their indigence by some fantastic tie of feeling. Humbug! But an advantageous connection, such as can be formed, in consonance with dignity of use and permanency of solid interests is not so bad, eh? No, responded Moore, in an absent manner. The subject seemed to have no interest for him. He did not pursue it. After sitting for some time, gazing at the fire, with a preoccupied air, he suddenly turned his head. Hark, said he. Did you hear wheels? Rising, he went to the window, opened it, and listened. He soon closed it. It is only the sound of the wind rising, he remarked, and the rivulet a little swollen, rushing down the hollow. 
I expected those wagons at six. It is near nine now. Seriously, do you suppose that the putting up of this new machinery will bring you into danger? inquired Mallow. Headstone seems to think it will. I only wish the machines, the frames were safe here, and lodged within the walls of this mill. Once put up, I defy the frame breakers. Let them only pay me a visit and take the consequences. My mill is my castle. One despises such low scoundrels, observed Malone, in a profound vein of reflection. I almost wish a party would call upon you tonight, but the road seemed extremely quiet as I came along. I saw nothing astir. You came by the Red House? Yes. There would be nothing on that road. It is in the direction of Stilbro, the risk lies. And you think there is risk? What these fellows have done to others, they may do to me. There's only this difference. Most of the manufacturers seem paralyzed when they are attacked. Sykes, for instance, when his dressing shop was set on fire and burned to the ground, when the cloth was torn from his tenters and left in shreds in the field, took no steps to discover or punish the miscreants. He gave up as tamely as a rabbit under the jaws of a ferret. Now I, if I know myself, should stand by my trade, my mill, and my machinery. Helmstone says these three are your gods, that the orders in council are with you another name for the seven deadly sins, that Castlery is your antichrist, and the war party his legions. Yes, I abhor all these things because they ruin me. They stand in my way. I cannot get on. I cannot execute my plans because of them. I see myself baffled at every turn by their untoward effects. But you are rich and thriving, Mo. I am very rich in cloth I cannot sell. You should step into my warehouse yonder and observe how it is piled to the roof with pieces. Rogues and Pearson are in the same condition. America used to be their market, but the orders in council have cut that off. Malone did not seem prepared to carry on briskly a conversation of this sort. He began to knock the heels of his boots together and to yawn. And then to think, continued Mr. Moore, who seemed too much taken up with the current of his own thoughts to note the symptoms of his guest's ennui. To think that these ridiculous gossips of Winbury and Braffield will keep pestering one about being married, as if there was nothing to be done in life but to pay attention, as they say, to some young lady, and then to go to church with her, and then to start on a bridal tour, and then to run through a round of visits, and then, I suppose, to be having a family. Oh, que diable importe. He broke off the aspiration, into which... He was launching with a certain energy and added more calmly, I believe women talk and think only of these things and they naturally fancy men's minds similarly occupied. Of course, of course, assented Malone, but never mind them. And he whistled, looked impatiently round and seemed to feel a great want of something. This time Moore caught and, it appeared, comprehended his demonstrations. Mr. Malone, said he, you must require refreshment after your wet walk. I forget hospitality. Not at all, rejoined Malone, but he looked as if the right nail was at last hit on the head, nevertheless. Moore rose and opened a cupboard. It is my fancy, said he, to have every convenience within myself. 
are not to be dependent on the femininity in the cottage yonder for every mouthful i eat or every drop i drink i often spend the evening and sup here alone and sleep with joe scott in the mail sometimes i am my own watchman i require little sleep and it pleases me on a fine night to wander for an hour or two with my musket about the hollow mr malone can you cook a mutton chop try me i've done it hundreds of times at college there's a dishful then and there's the gridiron turn them quickly you know the secret of keeping the juices in never fear me you shall see hand a knife and fork please the curate turned up his coat cuffs and applied himself to the cookery with vigour the manufacturer placed on the table plates a loaf of bread a black bottle and two tumblers he then produced a small copper kettle stirred from the same well stored recess his cupboard filled it with water from a large stone jar in a corner set it on the fire beside the hissing gridiron got lemons sugar and a small china punch bowl but while he was brewing the punch a tap at the door called him away is it you sarah yes sir will you come to supper please sir no i shall not be in tonight i shall sleep in the mill so lock the doors and tell your mistress to go to bed he returned you have your household in proper order observed malone approvingly as with his fine face ruddy as the ambers over which he bent he assiduously turned the mutton chops you are not under petticoat government like poor sweeting a man few how the fat spits it has burnt my hand destined to be ruled by women now you and i more there's a fine brown one for you and full of gravy you and i will have no gray mares in our stables when we marry i don't know i never think about it if the gray mare is handsome and tractable why not the chops are done is the punch brute there is a glassful taste it when joe scott and his minions return they shall have a share of this provided they bring home the frames intact malone waxed very exultant over the supper he laughed aloud at trifles made bad jokes and applauded them himself and in short grew unmeaningly noisy his host on the contrary remained quiet as before it is time reader that you should have some idea of the appearance of the same host i must endeavour to sketch him as he sits at table he is what you would probably call at first view rather a strange-looking man for he is thin dark sallow very foreign of aspect with shadowy hair carelessly streaking his forehead it appears that he spends but little time at his toilet or he would arrange it with more taste he seems unconscious that his features are fine that they have a sudden symmetry clearness regularity in their chiselling nor does a spectator become aware of this advantage till he has examined him well for an anxious countenance and a hollow somewhat haggard outline of face disturbed the idea of beauty with one of care his eyes are large and grey and grey their expression is intent and meditative rather searching than soft rather thoughtful than genial when he parts his lips in a smile his physiognomy is agreeable not that it is frank or cheerful even then but you feel the influence of a certain sedate charm suggestive whether truly or delusively of a considerate perhaps a kind nature
of feelings that may we are well at home patient forbearing possibly faithful feelings he is still young not more than 30 his stature is tall his figure slender his manner of speaking displeases he has an outlandish accent which notwithstanding a studied carelessness of pronunciation and diction grates on a british and specially on a yorkshire ear mr moore indeed was but half a briton and scarcely that he came of a foreign ancestry by the mother's side and was himself born and partly reared on a foreign soil a hybrid in nature it is probable he had a hybrid feeling on many points patriotism for one it is likely that he was unapt to attach himself to parties to sects even to climes and customs it is not impossible that he had a tendency to isolate his individual person from any community amidst which his lot might temporarily happen to be thrown and that he felt it to be his best wisdom to push the interests of robert gerard moore to the exclusion of philanthropic consideration for general interests with which he regarded the said gerard moore as in a great measure disconnected trade was mr moore's hereditary calling the gerards of antwerp had been merchants for two centuries back once they had been wealthy merchants but the uncertainties the involvements of business had come upon them disastrous speculations had loosened by degrees the foundations of their credit the house had stood on a tottering base for a dozen years and at last in the shock of the french revolution it had rushed down a total ruin in its fall was involved the english and yorkshire firm of moore closely connected with the antwerp house and of which one of the partners resident in antwerp robert moore had married hortense gerard with the prospect of his bride inheriting her father constantine gerard's share in the business she inherited as we have seen but a share in the liabilities of the firm and these liabilities though duly set aside by composition with creditors some said her son robert accepted in his turn as a legacy and that he aspired one day to discharge them and to rebuild the fallen house of gerard and moore on a scale at least equal to its former greatness it was even supposed that he took bypassed circumstances much to heart and if a childhood passed at the side of a saturnine mother under foreboding of coming evil and a manhood drenched and blighted by the pitiless descent of the storm could painfully impress the mind his probably was impressed in no golden characters if however he had a great end of restoration in view it was not in his power to employ great means for its attainment he was obliged to be content with a day of small things when he came to yorkshire he whose ancestors had owned warehouses in the seaport and factories in that inland town had possessed their town house and their country seat saw no way open to him but to rent a cloth mill in an out of the way nook of an out of the way district to take a cottage adjoining it for his residence and to add to his possessions as pasture for his horse and space for his cloth tenters a few acres of the steep rugged land that lined the hollow through which his mill stream brought 
all this he held at a somewhat high rent for these war times were hard and everything was dear of the trustees of the field head estate then the property of a miner at the time this history commences robert moore had lived but two years in the district during which period he had at least proved himself possessed of the quality of activity the dingy cottage was converted into a neat tasteful residence of part of the rough land he had made garden ground which he cultivated with singular even with flemish exactness and care as to the mill which was an old structure and fitted up with old machinery now become inefficient and out of date he had from the first evinced the strongest contempt for all its arrangements and appointments his aim had been to effect a radical reform which he had executed as fast as his very limited capital would allow and the narrowness of that capital and consequent check on his progress was a restraint which galled his spirit sorely moore ever wanted to push on forward was the device stamped upon his soul but poverty curbed him sometimes figuratively he foamed at the mouth when the reins were drawn very tight in this state of feeling it is not to be expected that he would deliberate much as to whether his advance was or was not prejudicial to others not being a native nor for any length of time a resident of the neighbourhood he did not sufficiently care when the new inventions threw the old work people out of employ he never asked himself where those to whom he no longer paid weekly wages found daily bread and in this negligence he only resembled thousands besides on whom the starving poor of yorkshire seemed to have a closer claim the period of which i write was an overshadowed one in british history and especially in the history of the northern provinces war was then at its height europe was all involved therein england if not weary was worn with long resistance yes and half her people were weary too and cried out for peace on any terms national honour was become a mere empty name of no value in the eyes of many because their sight was dim with for mine and for a morsel of meat they would have sold their birthright the orders in council provoked by napoleon's milan and berlin decrees and forbidding neutral powers to trade with france had by offending america cut off the principal market of the yorkshire woolen trade and brought it consequently to the verge of ruin minor foreign markets were glutted and would receive no more the brazils portugal sicily were all overstocked by nearly two years consumption at this crisis certain inventions in machinery were introduced into the staple manufacturers of the north which greatly reducing the number of hands necessary to be employed threw thousands out of work and left them without legitimate means of sustaining life a bad harvest supervened distress reached its climax endurance overgoaded stretched the hand of fraternity to sedition the throes of a sort of moral earthquake were felt heaving under the hills of the northern counties but as is usual in such cases nobody took much notice when a food riot broke out in a manufacturing town 
when a gig mill was burnt to the ground or a manufacturer's house was attacked the furniture thrown into the streets and the family forced to flee for their lives some local measures were or were not taken by the local magistracy a ringleader was detected or more frequently suffered to elude detection newspaper paragraphs were written on the subject and there the thing stopped as to the sufferers whose sole inheritance was labor and who had lost that inheritance who could not get work and consequently could not get wages and consequently could not get bread they were left to suffer on perhaps inevitably left it would not do to stop the progress of invention to damage science by discouraging its improvements the war could not be terminated efficient relief could not be raised there was no help then so the unemployed underwent their destiny ate the bread and drank the waters of affliction misery generates hate these sufferers hated the machines which they believed took their bread from them they hated the buildings which contained those machines they hated the manufacturers who owned those buildings in the parish of briarfield with which we have at present to do hollow's mill was the place held most abominable gerard moore in his double character of semi-foreigner and thorough-going progressist the man most abominated and it perhaps rather agreed with moore's temperament than otherwise to be generally hated especially when he believed the thing for which he was hated a right and an expedient thing and it was with a sense of warlike excitement he on this night sat in his counting-house waiting the arrival of his frame-laden wagons malone's coming and company were it may be most unwelcome to him he would have preferred sitting alone for he liked a silent sombre unsafe solitude his watchman's musket would have been company enough for him the full flowing beck in the den would have delivered continuously the discourse most genial to his ear sweet he said in his french fashion as malone made a noise with his glass he listened a moment then rose put his hat on and went out at the counting-house door the night was still dark and stagnant the water yet rushed on full and fast its flow almost seemed a flood in the utter silence moore's ear however caught another sound very distant but yet dissimilar broken and rugged in short a sound of heavy waves crunching a stony road he returned to the counting-house and lit a lantern with which he walked down the mill-yard and proceeded to open the gates the big wagons were coming on the dray horses huge hoofs were heard splashing in the mud and water moore hailed them hey joe scott is all right probably joe scott was yet at too great a distance to hear the inquiry he did not answer it it's all right i say again asked moore when the elephant-like leader's nose almost touched his someone jumped out from the foremost wagon into the road a voice cried aloud ay ay devil old's red we've smashed them and there was a run the wagon stood still they were now deserted joe scott no joe scott answered margatroyd pig hills sykes no reply mr moore lifted his lantern and looked into the vehicles there was neither man 
nor machinery. They were empty and abandoned. Now Mr. Moore loved his machinery. He had risked the last of his capital on the purchase of these springs and shares, which tonight had been expected. Speculations most important to his interests depended on the results to be wrought by them. Where were they? The words, We've smashed them, rang in his ears. How did the catastrophe affect him? By the light of the lantern he held, were his features visible, relaxing to a singular smile, the smile the man of determined spirit wears when he reaches a juncture in his life, where this determined spirit is to feel a demand on its strength, when the strain is to be made and the faculty must bear or break. Yet he remained silent and even motionless, what at the instant he neither knew what to say nor what to do. He placed the lantern on the ground and stood with his arms folded, gazing down and reflecting. An impatient trampling of one of the horses made him presently look up. His eye in the moment caught the gleam of something white attached to a part of the harness. Examined by the light of the lantern, this proved to be a folded paper, a billet. It bore no address without. Within was the superscription, To the devil of Hollow's Min. We will not copy the rest of the orthography, which was very peculiar, but translate it into legible English. It ran thus. Your heelish machinery is shivered to smash on Stilbro Moor, and your men are lying bound hand and foot in a ditch by the roadside. Take this as a warning from men that are starving and have starving wives and children to go home to when they have done this deed. If you get new machines, or if you otherwise go on as you have done, you shall hear from us again. Beware. Hear from you again? Yes, I'll hear from you again, and you shall hear from me. I'll speak to you directly. On Stilbro Moor, you shall hear from me in a moment. Having led the wagons within the gates, he hastened towards the cottage. Opening the door, he spoke a few words quickly but quietly to two females who ran to meet him in the passage. He calmed the seeming alarm of one by a brief palliative account of what had taken place. To the other he said, Go into the mill, Sarah. There is the key, and ring the mill bell as loud as you can. Afterwards, you will get another lantern and help me to light up the front. Returning to his horses, he unharnessed, fed, and stapled them with equal speed and care, pausing occasionally, while so occupied as if to listen for the mill bell. It clanged out presently with irregular but loud and alarming din. The hurried, agitated peal seemed more urgent than if the summons had been steadily given by a practised hand. On that still night, at that unusual hour, it was heard a long way round. The guests in the kitchen of the Red House were startled by the clangour and, declaring that, they must be somewhat more nor common to do at Hollow's Mill. They called for lanterns and hurried to the spot in a body. And scarcely had they thronged into the yard with the gleaming lights, when the tramp of horses was heard, and a little man in a shovel hat, sitting erect on the back of a shaggy pony, rode lightly in, followed by an eight-de-camp mounted on a larger steed. Mr. Moe, meantime, after stabling his stray horses, had saddled his hackney, and with the aid of Sarah, the servant, lit up his mill, 
whose wide and long front now glared one great illumination, throwing a sufficient light on the yard to obviate all fear of confusion arising from obscurity. Already a deep hum of voices became audible. Mr. Malone had at length issued from the counting-house, previously taking the precaution to dip his head and face in the stone-water jar, and this precaution, together with the sudden alarm, had nearly restored to him the possession of those senses which the punch had partially scattered. He stood with his hat on the back of his head, and his shillelagh grasped in his dexter fist, answering much at random the questions of the newly-arrived party from the Red House. Mr. Moore now appeared, and was immediately confronted by the shovel hat and the shaggy pony. Well, Moore, what is your business with us? I thought you would want us tonight, me and the headman here, patting his pony's neck, and Tom and Astarger. When I heard your mill bell, I could sit no longer, so I left Boldby to finish his supper alone. But where is the enemy? I do not see a mask or a smutted face present, and there is not a pane of glass broken in your windows. Have you had an attack, or do you expect one? Oh, not at all. I have neither had one nor expect one, answered Moore coolly. I only ordered the bell to be rung because I want two or three neighbours to stay here in the hollow while I, and a couple or so more, go over to Stilbro Moor. To Stilbro Moor? What to do? To meet the wagons? The wagons are come home an hour ago. Then all's right. What more would you have? They came home empty, and Joe Scott and company are left on the moor, and so are the frames. Read that scroll. Mr. Hellstone received and perused the document of which the contents have before been given. Huh, they've only served you as they serve others, but however, the poor fellows in the ditch will be expecting help with some impatience. This is a wet night for such a bird. I and Tom will go with you. Malone may stay behind and take care of the mill. What is the matter with him? His eyes seem starting out of his head. He has been eating a mutton chop. Indeed. Peter Augustus, be on your guard. Eat no more mutton chops tonight. You are left here in command of these premises. An honourable post. Is anybody to stay with me? As many of the present assemblage as choose. My lads, how many of you will remain here? And how many will go a little way with me and Mr. Moore on the Stilbro Road to meet some men who have been waylaid and assaulted by frame-breakers? The small number of three volunteered to go. The rest preferred staying behind. As Mr. Moore mounted his horse, the rector asked him in a low voice whether he had locked up the mutton chops so that Peter Augustus could not get at them. The manufacturer nodded an affirmative and the rescue party set out. End of section 2. Recording by Vijeta Sharma.